At the start of the pandemic, there was a huge gap in the COVID death rate. Black Americans were much more likely to die from the virus than white Americans. Then late last year, Post reporter Akilah Johnson noticed a change. That disparity flipped. It wasn't just that, you know, Black people had started to die at lesser rates and fewer Black people were dying. It was because white people had begun to die at the same kind of unimaginable numbers that Black people had thus far. As you did your reporting, I mean, first, when you just saw this reversal of trends, was it a big surprise to you? Oh, it was an absolute surprise. The question was, was it a thing for a moment, like a blip in the numbers, or was this going to be a sustained trend? And it turned out to be a sustained trend. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Elahe Izadi. It's Thursday, October 20th. Today, why white people in the U.S. are now more likely to die of COVID than Black Americans. That's according to new reporting from Akila Johnson, who writes about health disparities, and Post data analyst Dan Keating. As Akila tells us, the reasons why more white people are dying of COVID are not easy or obvious. She breaks down the complex historic forces that brought us here and what this means for the future. During the beginning of the pandemic, you had people of color, Black people in particular, who were dying at almost three times the rate of their white counterpart, whereas now the death rates are roughly equal. And in some instances, white people are dying at higher rates than Black people. Yeah, I really want to walk through all of that and starting with why was it in the beginning of the pandemic people of color were more likely than white Americans to get really sick from COVID and die? You know, at the beginning of the pandemic, so we almost have to kind of take a step back in time to remember what the world was like almost three years ago. You know, there were no treatments. There there were no—I mean, there still is no cure, but there were there just were no treatments. So if you got it, you just got it. And so you had folks who were then and still are now living in really kind of cramped housing, so crowded living conditions, which uh, is a perfect breeding ground for communicable disease such as COVID to spread. You had folks who couldn't work from home, right? And so when stay-at-home orders were still in place and we were still very much— Um, encouraging people not to go outside, not to mix, not to mingle. A lot of Black and Latino uh, people had jobs that they couldn't do from home. Folks who were at the grocery stores, bus drivers, uh, a lot of folks in government work. These were essential workers. Then you also have a lot of underlying chronic conditions that, you know, um, obesity, hypertension, diabetes are all chronic conditions that um, Black people have at higher rates than their white counterparts. A whole host of systemic issues kind of swirled together to create this perfect storm where you have the most vulnerable people in the population who were at greatest risk of exposure, were being exposed, and then were dying at the higher rates of COVID. Right, and I'm imagining there's a a whole host of reasons, including historical ones, that played into all of those pre-existing disparities, right? Well, absolutely. I mean, you know, I mentioned... um, like crowded living conditions, a lot of that is is a legacy of segregation, you know, where folks of color were forced to live in communities where disinvestment was was rampant, right? So if we're talking crowded living conditions, um, food deserts, 
you know, lack of access to healthcare providers, transportation issues. A lot of those are are historic issues that that are kind of legacies and carryovers from how society was structured in a very unequal way. When did you see this shift starting to happen from Black people and Latino people dying at disproportionately high rates when compared to white people, that this flipped? So about a year ago, um, this number came out. There had been a 90 percent drop in, in, in deaths in communities of color. And so as we were doing some truth spotting and, and talking to different researchers and pollers who follow these kinds of things, at that time, what we were seeing is that the, the disparity in death rates was narrowing, but it still existed. The gap was getting smaller in October of last year, but it still existed. And I will never forget, it was in December. We were planning to write a story about a narrowing of a gap. And Dan Keating, my reporting partner on this, said, let me run the numbers one more time. And it was like right before the Christmas holiday. And the lines crossed. And Meaning we, it flipped. It flipped. And that's when you have that like holy fill in the blank because this is, you know, Family paper. (laughs) Family podcast. (laughs) Family podcast. Fill in the blank. The lines crossed and it flipped and white people were dying at a higher rate than black people. So let's get into why that happened. Why were white people doing so much worse? Let's start with politics. That seems like one of the easy explanations here. But what did your reporting reveal? Oh, yeah. I mean, the easy explanation is Republicans won't get vaccinated. You know, like that is— And that's based on data. That's based on data, right? Polls show that um, folks who are least likely to be vaccinated are Republicans. And they're mostly white. And they're mostly white, right? So um, white people are the core of the Republican base. And so if you didn't want to go any further and you wanted to kind of tie it up in a bow, you could stop there. But it really is much deeper than that. I mean, you've got to consider the shifting dynamics of— of the virus. You know, you have this mutating virus that is better able to evade and escape immunizations. So let's say you are vaccinated and you happen to live in an area where maybe there aren't a lot of people around you who are vaccinated because you've got this mutated virus that is now better able to evade, you know, immunization, the risk pool is larger. You also have to consider... um, state legislatures and local ordinances hamstrung public safety efforts in a lot of ways, right? You have a lot of legislatures that created laws limiting and restricting what public health authorities were allowed to do, stay-at-home orders, mask mandates, vaccine mandates. And you've just got the stress of, like, we have been living through this kind of cataclysmic moment in time where no one is certain of the future And people discount what chronic stress does to the body. It's just been two years of chronic stress and how you cope with stress. You know, alcohol, drugs, food. um, You know, those are kind of the the three stereotypical ones and a whole host of other kind of unhealthy coping mechanisms on top of just chronic stress, which leaves your body— less likely to fight off infection. It's less likely to kind of mount an antibody response. And so you're just more vulnerable, you know, to infection. And so all of these things are contributing and piling on top of each other. And then also, let's talk about the vaccine element here, because that was felt like it ended up being very politicized, too. 
Yet at the start of when the vaccines came out, I feel like there was a lot of talk about Black people being hesitant to get the vaccine. And in your reporting, did you find it to be true that there was a difference in hesitation around the vaccine? And and how did that play out in how people got sick and died? You know, there's some researchers at uh, Ohio State University who looked into who looked into to vaccine hesitancy. And what they found is that at the beginning of the pandemic, or shall I say, when the vaccine first kind of came o- online, Black and white people were about equally hesitant. You know, everybody was hesitant. Right. Like, everybody this? was questioning <laughs> this, this new shot that had just come out that was developed super fast. Um, so everybody had some questions. You know, what the researchers found is that Black people were able to overcome their hesitancy quicker than white people. And it a lot of it had to do with the framing of the vaccine in terms of this being something that is needed to keep my family and my community safe. So the communal nature of the protection that the vaccine provided was really a driving element that helped the Black community overcome its hesitancy faster. So it's not that the white community did not overcome its hesitancy. They just did not do it as quickly as the Black community. And so there is a gulf that remains. And so, you know, what polls show is that Republicans are the least likely folks to be vaccinated now. And and the core of the Republican base are white people. Another thing that I'm thinking about is how early in the pandemic, when the death rates among people of color were so much higher, you know, it's not hard to wonder or question if more white people had been dying early on, if the response from mostly white people in positions of power would have been different. You know, it's interesting. So one of the people that I spoke to for this story is Dr. James Hildreth, who is the president and CEO of Meharry Medical College, which is one of the oldest and largest historically black medical schools in the country. And it's based in Nashville, Tennessee. And Dr. Hildreth is not just, you know, the president of this medical school. He also um, sits on various kind of federal boards who look at the coronavirus shot, you know, who are making recommendations about the shot. And also he's just a scientist who studies viruses and and immunology. And so I thought he would be a wealth of knowledge to kind of help unpack what was happening. And during the course of those conversations, he said something that really kind of gets at the core, maybe, of what our data was showing. And that has to do with who was dying of COVID when and how those death patterns changed. I still remember when I was doing the mayor's press conferences a few months into this, I think we had reached 100,000 people dead. And uh, I made note of the fact that most of those people who had died looked like me. And I wondered aloud if, you know, it was the mayor's press conference, live TV, if, if it were reversed, would we not... Would the whole nation not be more galvanized to fight this thing? You know, it's interesting. So there's some researchers at the University of Georgia who um, spent some time, and what they found out is that when white people were told about kind of the pandemic's disparate impact on communities of color, either if they were told specifically that this was happening or they just kind of knew it or had an inference, they were less likely to be empathetic with 
vulnerable communities and they were less likely to take the pandemic seriously, ultimately because it was just like, well, racial health disparities are just part of the status quo. So things are working the way they have and should be working. So this is just not something that I need to worry about. But again, communicable disease. And that is one of the, you know, the findings that the researcher said is that like, maybe it just hadn't resonated or wasn't clear that this could shift and that white people could ultimately be harmed in the same way that people of color were. So, Akila, this idea more broadly about the attitudes of white Americans on public health, what else did you learn in your reporting about how those attitudes differ from those of Black Americans when it comes to health and the healthcare system? There is a, um, a physician and sociologist at Vanderbilt University, uh, Dr. Jonathan Metzl, who has written a book called Dying of Whiteness, and it was published in 2019. In essence, what Dr. Metzl said when, when I spoke to him is, I didn't realize that I was writing kind of the precursor or the pre-narrative to the pandemic, because at the time he was doing a lot of research looking at the Affordable Care Act. And so he had done these focus groups in Middle Tennessee with kind of 20 to 60-year-old black and white men. And and what the focus groups revealed is that black and white men kind of described the exact same stressors in terms of achieving health, you know, being healthy, dealing with kind of the healthcare system. They differed greatly in the idea of an us versus them, whereas black people very much saw the ACA and health as kind of a communal good versus white people saw it as almost a cost to be paid in an individual kind of thing. You know, the ACA was very much a cost that I'm going to have to pay for somebody else to have health care versus, oh, well, this is going to be good for everybody, so we we should all use it. And, you know, that trickles to and that, that marries with what we saw with the vaccine, individual versus common good. He spoke to somebody in 2016, you know, this man named Trevor, who was in essentially liver failure, uh, who said he would rather die before he got the ACA. And I spoke to someone who was in acute kidney failure, who was denied a kidney transplant in January because he wouldn't take the COVID shot. And he said he'd rather die than get the COVID shot. So that goes to the idea of this dying of whiteness, whiteness being this ideology that my individual choice and freedom in this sense is above all else. Yeah. And that I die for this. You know, it goes, it really goes back to, um, I mean, it's centuries in the making, right? So in speaking to some medical historians, um, the root, there, there are roots in that when you think about federal overreach and what it means in terms of federal overreach stemming from Reconstruction era legislation to provide uh, protections and rights for n- newly freed, you know, formerly enslaved people. And that was seen as a bridge too far, and providing those protections and rights was an infringement on states' rights, right? Like, that was infringing on the rights, individual rights of of white people. And so there is a legacy of federal government coming in to say, this is for your well-being and your health, And they're being pushed back, particularly in white communities, because it is an infringement on individual rights. 
you know, so that that's how that argument gets framed, according to all these researchers who study white racial politics. And it's like the government just doesn't need to tell me what to do. I get to make that choice when it comes to taking a COVID vaccine or wearing a mask. After the break, public health officials are now warning the country about a potential surge in COVID infections this winter. We'll look at what these trends can tell us about what could happen in the next few months. We'll be right back. Akila, are there disparities looking ahead in who's getting the bivalent booster? And what is the consequence of many people not getting boosted? So when we think of where we are in the pandemic right now, the consequence of many people not getting boosted is that you have all of these mutating variants that are out there, you know. And Dr. Hildreth and I have had many conversations where he is worried that there is going to be the one variant that evades all of our immunizations so far. And so that becomes that becomes the ultimate fear if not enough people um get vaccinated and boosted because there's just too much there's just too much virus out there in the in the atmosphere that can mutate and mutate and eventually one of those mutations the fear is our vaccines aren't, aren't going to work against and so when we're we are looking ahead to a possible winter surge how do you see racial politics play out well what we have seen in other surges right so with delta and with omicron is when the pandemic surges communities of color are hardest hit. So during both of those waves, the Black death rate shot above the white death rate. When the surge subsided, particularly with Omicron, when the surge subsided, the Black death rate again dropped below the white death rate. And so if we're just going based off of previous data, another surge is going to hit communities of color hard because some of, while some things have shifted, some things still have not. Who gets to work from home? Who lives in overcrowded housing? Who, you know, has access to hospitals that are under-resourced, understaffed, underfunded? You know, some of those root causes remain. And so when a surge happens and there's already a strained hospital and you're already kind of in an under-resourced or divested community, that tension creates these bottlenecks where you have communities of color who who are experiencing the most harm in in similar ways that they were at the beginning of the pandemic. Akila, it seems like racism was baked into so much of the way this country responded to COVID. And the sort of irony here is that part of the reason that so many white people are dying now is because early in the pandemic, they didn't take the virus as seriously because there perhaps was this perception that it was killing more people of color and it's not something that's impacting impacting them as much. So what are you thinking about after spending a year digging into this research and reporting? Has this story changed the way that you think about health disparities in the pandemic? Well, it's interesting because you said racism was baked into so much of how this country responded to the pandemic. But really, racism is baked into so much of how the society is structured that the way we responded to the pandemic was just a natural outgrowth of an already unequal society where you had, you know, um, unequal exposure, unequal risk, 
uh, unequal infection and unequal death. And so that existed before the pandemic, right? Like all of those things have existed. They exist with flu. They exist with, you know, rates of cancer, rates of hypertension, rates of diabetes. You pick a chronic condition, you you were seeing those things happen. Um, and so what the pandemic really did is just kind of expose what had our had always been there, what has always kind of been this country's underlying condition that makes us sicker as a nation, that makes us as a nation live sicker and die quicker than our high-income peers. And so what this, not just here, but I guess the three years, nearly three years of the pandemic, really has caused me to think about is all the various ways that we have structured our society that make us sicker. And by us, I mean the collective us as in these United States, right? I mean, it just caused more than, there's been more than a million deaths in this country. That is an unheard of number when you think about the short amount of time that so many people have died. And so I keep thinking about the way that we, the collective we, have structured society and how those things impact our health and our being anyone and everyone who lives in this country in various ways. Akila, thank you so much for bringing your reporting to us. Thank you. Akila Johnson covers health disparities for The Post. Ariel Plotnick produced this story. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's episode was edited by Lucy Perkins and mixed by Sean Carter. And before we go, you may have heard the news about the resignation of UK Prime Minister Liz Truss, who had replaced Boris Johnson. Truss lasted for just 44 days, making her the shortest-serving prime minister in 300 years of British history. Our colleagues in London are bringing you the latest news of what's going to happen next, and you can find their reporting on WashingtonPost.com. We also had an episode earlier this month here on Post Reports about the eroding faith in the new prime minister. It's called In Trust the UK Doesn't Trust. It's a great explainer of who she is and how her proposals weakened the country's already struggling economy. If you want to take a listen, we'll put a link to that episode in our show notes and at postreports.com. I'm Ella Heizadi. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.